It is true that God is a God of love. But if there is any distinction of importance in the attributes of God, His holiness seems to have first place. Whenever God grants a vision of Himself in the Scriptures, the most prominent of the divine attributes was always holiness. Job, for example. God appeared to Job at the closing of the drama about his life. And the final words of Job, which are recorded for us, say this, My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. God's holiness. Job's lowliness. Moses was shepherding his sheep on the side of the mountain when he came across a tree that was on fire but was not consumed. As he approached the tree to see what was going on, the angel of the Lord spoke to him out of the fire. And the angel said to Moses, Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Holy ground. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And at that, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. In the year the king Uzziah died, Isaiah had a vision of God. And God's glory filled the temple. And he heard the heavenly creatures crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the response of this prophet, who was the best man in his nation, was, woe is me. Prophets normally pronounced woe upon those who were being judged by God. But here Isaiah, in the presence of God's holiness, pronounces judgment on himself. Woe is me, he said. I am ruined. So great was this impression of the holiness of God upon Isaiah that as he wrote his book, he speaks of God more than 30 times as the Holy One, the Holy One. It is God's holiness that he wants you and me to remember. And we are desperately in need of that reminder because of the awfulness of sin. And because of the casualness with which we too often engage in it. God says to his people, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Open your Bible with me, please, to Nehemiah chapter 5, where we see Nehemiah living on the edge. Living on the edge here with injustice. You see, God is holy. His holiness requires that he is therefore also just. He is just. God's justice is the working out of his holiness with respect to humanity and to history. The Bible says there is no injustice with God because God is just. 
Thankfully, God is a God who forgives sinners who turn to him in repentance. But he is also a God who will punish the guilty, who refuse him and fail to heed his warnings. God calls upon us as his people to treat others justly and to work for justice in our world. We see an example of that in this chapter of Nehemiah, where in the midst of the building of the walls of the city of Jerusalem, it says, now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their Jewish brothers. Some were saying, we and our sons and daughters are numerous. In order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. Others were saying, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, our homes to get grain during the famine. Still others were saying, we've had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. Although we are of the same flesh and blood as our countrymen, and though our sons are as good as theirs, yet we've had to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved. But we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. In those three words, we are powerless, there is the cry of those who suffer with injustice. They are left powerless, unable to respond to the oppression that is upon them. Say with me those three words, we are powerless. That's the result of injustice. Can you feel this morning the emotion of these people who in the midst of, of famine were having to sell their own children into slavery to get money to pay the king's tax, the king of, of Persia here, and who are having to sell their, their estates in order to buy food to eat. They were being charged usury, not by the Persians, but by their own Jewish brothers. And they cried out to Nehemiah, the governor, and they said, we are powerless. When I heard their outcry in these charges, Nehemiah says, I was very angry. I pondered them in my heart and then accused the nobles and officials. I told them, you are exacting usury from your own countrymen. So I called together a large meeting to deal with them and said, as far as possible, we have bought back our Jewish brothers who were sold to the Gentiles. Now you are selling your brothers only for them to be sold back to us. And they kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. Nehemiah gives you and me an example this morning as to how God who is just wants us to react to injustice. I remind you of what Micah the prophet said about the same time in Israel's history. He has showed you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. When we use the word justice, we all have certain things that come to mind. What does the Bible mean 
by the word justice. We'll read these words from the Nelson Bible Dictionary. It defines justice as the practice of what is right and just. Justice or judgment specifies what is right, not only as measured by a code of law, but also by what makes for right relationships as well as harmony and peace. The English term justice has a strong legal flavor, but the concept of justice in the Bible goes beyond the law courts to everyday life. The Bible speaks of doing justice, whereas we speak of getting justice. Now notice this next sentence. Doing justice is to maintain what is right or to set things right. Justice is not is done, rather, when honorable relations are maintained between husbands and wives, parents and children, employers and employees, government and citizens, and man and God. Justice refers to brotherliness, brotherliness in spirit and action. You see, when you and I think of justice, we think of courts. We think of police action. We think of the law. But the Jewish mindset was broader than that. Justice was having right relations with all of those in your circle. Between husbands and wives, parents and children, employees and employers, masters and slaves, citizens and government. What then is injustice? Injustice is the outworking of sin in human relationships. Now, if justice is the outworking of God's holiness in humanity, injustice is just the opposite. It is the outworking of sin in human relationships. In the context of Nehemiah chapter 5, the complaints of injustice erupt as this work of the wall is in progress. The timing from Nehemiah's perspective could not have been worse, but often that's the way things work. The existing issues that were under the surface erupted with a supernatural energy and with malignant management. What I'm saying by that is that the devil was the one who was behind this injustice, and he caused it to erupt at a vulnerable moment for Nehemiah. What were the issues that confronted Nehemiah? What did he learn about? Well, he learned that the poor were starving. They were being denied basic food, not by the occupying power of Persia, but by their own wealthy countrymen. There were landowners who were being forced to mortgage their properties in order to buy food, mortgage the properties to a wealthy few. The rich were getting richer. And there were others who were forced to borrow money at exorbitant rates of usury and even to sell their own children into slavery just in order to live. The injustice that is pointed to in chapter 5 is economic injustice. And that, of course, is with us always. In whatever system of economics you live, there are always injustices. But injustice is not only economic. Injustice can occur on any level of human interaction. It can be a matter of criminal law. 
or the enforcement of punishment. There are aspects of both the law and the the punishment that is meted out from the law that can be unjust. Even our system, which I think is the best system in the world, has injustices to it. And we see it, we read about it every day. There's injustice that occurs because of the delivery of basic human needs to those who lack them. You think of the amount of money that has been given to to eradicate poverty in our nation since that became a major focus of our government back in the Johnson administration, which is before many of you were born. You think of the billions and billions and billions of dollars that have been poured into that And we still have poor with us today and probably more than then. What's happened to that money? It has been unjustly used in many cases for other purposes. We have given a lot of money to help nations of the world. But what happens all too often? Unjust governments scam that money. And it never gets to the people that it was intended to help. Injustice. Then there is injustice in the wielding of political power. There is injustice that comes because of the treatment of enemies or of prisoners. Injustice can be based upon social class. It can be based upon the color of one's skin. It can be based upon religious beliefs. It can be based upon gender. Martin Luther King said, Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. And we have to acknowledge that our world is filled with injustice. Now, there's a problem here. And that problem is defining in a society like ours what injustice really is. Because, you see, you and I live in a a day when injustice or discrimination is claimed by many people. Competing groups even. Often injustice is based upon politically correct ideas about tolerance. And so accusations fly back and forth. What is it that determines injustice anyway? Well, I want to say first of all that injustice cannot be determined solely by human beings. Because whoever we are, however well-intentioned we may be, We have biases that are built into our lives. We have biases. Now, we can make attempts to define justice and injustice in human relationships, but inevitably we're going to fail. Because we are humans and we ourselves are contaminated by sin. And we see relationships with others or relationships between the government and groups in our country. We see all of that through glasses that are tinted by our own personal bias. There is no human being that can ultimately define what justice or injustice might be. I want to say to you that what determines injustice is God. Injustice can only truly be determined by a transcendent, unchanging standard. And that standard is God's holiness. 
It is God who defines for us what is just and what is unjust. He defines it for us because God is holy and he is just. God tells us that he has a particular concern for the poor, for widows, for orphans, for the strangers in the land, for immigrants, for those who cannot defend themselves. He tells us that he has a particular concern for those who are taken advantage of by corrupt systems of government and politics. God has special concern for those who suffer injustice in their innocence. Injustice is of a special concern to a holy God. We need, as evangelicals, to do a better job of living on the edge with injustice. That's because our God, the God that we know and love and serve, is one day going to judge injustice. You say, well, pastor, if we need to do a better job of living on the edge with it, what does that mean? That's what I want to talk about as I close. We can follow Nehemiah's example. It means, first of all, seeing the problem. Seeing the problem. That's not as easy as it may seem at first. We think we see injustice, but again, our own bias, our own thoughts can blind us to injustice. Nehemiah apparently did not see the issues that were brought to him later as they got into the work. Or maybe he saw them and intended to deal with them later. But the fact is, in the middle of the project, these things erupted. And he saw them. And that's where you and I have to begin. I think we need to ask God to open our eyes to see the injustices in our world. Secondly, it means taking some definite steps to confront injustice. You see, you cannot live in complacency with injustice and also serve a just and holy God. Those two things don't don't match. We cannot live complacently with injustice and say that we serve a just God. The Bible says that God is holy, God is love, God is light. It also says God is just. God is just. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne, says the psalmist in Psalm 89. The Lord is righteous. He loves justice. Nehemiah saw the problem, and then Nehemiah took some definite steps to correct the injustice. Verse 9. So he gave them this little speech. He introduced the problem, put them in their place, and he continued. What you are doing, he says, to these people who were acting unjustly toward their brothers, what you are doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God 
to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? Nehemiah, first of all, reminds them of the fear of God. If you and I are going to deal with injustice, I believe we have to start there. Teach the fear of God. Our society has forgotten the fear of God. As was true of that pagan world that was described in Romans chapter 1, it is true of our pagan world, our increasingly pagan culture, there is no fear of God in their eyes. The fear of God is a healthy respect for who God is. In 2 Chronicles chapter 19, King Jehoshaphat appoints a system of judges to help him rule the land. And among other things that it says there uh, in, in 2 Chronicles 19.7, and I want to turn it and read it for you, it says that justice was his concern and it came from the fear of God. 2 Chronicles chapter 19 and verse 7. He told them, consider carefully what you do. He says this to the judges. Because you are not judging for man, but for the Lord, who is with you wherever you give a, whenever you give a verdict. Now let the fear of the Lord be upon you. You see, that king understood that judges will only judge properly when the fear of God is upon them. If it is the fear of breaking political correctness, there will be another decision. If there is a fear of some political group or some political party, there will be another decision given. But if those who deal with justice have a fear for God that trumps every other fear, we will come a lot closer to justice in the world. And when citizens of a nation have a fear for God, they will have a concern for justice, true justice. Nehemiah then, in verses 10 through 13, explains what he wants them to do. Nehemiah begins to work for justice. He not only tells them to fear God, but he lays out for them exactly what they need to do to correct the situation. You and I need to do a better job of seeing injustice and working against injustices in our society. Larry Pegram and I had a long talk this week regarding VAC and its values. And this is one of the values of this organization. You see, we tend to do a very good job confronting and battling moral evil in our world. And we ought to. Many of us are very concerned about the, what he brought up this morning, about teenagers who are able to get abortions without parental consent in California. That is unjust. Parents are responsible for their children, not the government. And there is a, a Proposition 73 that is on the ballot a week from Tuesday that I hope you'll vote for because it requires that there be permission of parents 
And there's an exception built into that that is fair. But it requires that parents be involved in that decision, that major medical decision for a young person. We need to work for justice. When we see racial injustice, we ought to be some of the first people on the line defending those who are saying, we are powerless. And sometimes I know we get fatigued with these kinds of things. But let me tell you, there is still a lot of racial injustice in our country. And whereas we may feel, and again, this is our own context, right? We may feel that we're not prejudiced and that we're not acting unjustly toward minorities. The fact is that our whole system acts unjustly toward minorities in certain cases. And we, being part of the majority, don't see it. I was in a meeting a few weeks ago with some black pastors from the Bay Area regarding the hurricane. They had some things to say that made me sit in my chair and listen. Because they are seeing, these are the same people, these are people who love the same Jesus I love and preach the same gospel I preach, but they see our society in a different way than I see it as a white pastor in a suburb. I need to listen to what they're saying. They may not be right in everything, nor may I be right in everything. But I need to understand their perspective. I need to see it. And where injustice is real, and it still is real in some cases, we need to be there to defend those who are powerless against the system. And then in verses 14 through 19, Nehemiah sets the example. He points to the fact that he and his brothers have set an example themselves of justice. And you know, folks, we can't go out and work for justice unless we're willing also to set the example for it in our own lives and interaction with others. We need to do a better job of living on the edge with injustice. That's because our God is going to judge injustice. The Lord is known by his justice. The wicked are ensnared by the works of their hands. In Acts chapter 17, verse 31, the Apostle Paul declared to the pagans in Athens, God has established a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness or with justice by that man whom he has ordained and he has given proof of this in that he has raised him from the dead. And with that they shut him off. They didn't want to hear anymore. People don't want to hear about God judging with justice. And the fact that that is guaranteed because of the resurrection of Jesus. But it's true. And because that is true, you and I now need to live on the edge, living against the injustices of our world. What difference does it make anyway that God is just? Let me just give you three quick answers. Number one, it provides order for human civilization. Just imagine, if you dare for a moment, our world without justice, at least some justice, without there being God's order of justice in there. If there were no justice in the mix, believe me, this world would not be a place you would want to live in. It would be hell. It would be hell. Secondly, it guarantees that the wrongs of this world will someday be exposed and judged. 
Sometimes it does seem, does it not, that evildoers get away with their deeds, but that is not so. They may escape the court or they may escape the punishment of the law, but they will not escape God. All will give an account to him. And as he himself says, they will be judged according to the works of their lives. Ultimately, there is justice in this universe, and it is God who will exact it. But there's a third reason that you and I can be grateful for justice, and that is that it assures that those who put their faith in Jesus Christ are saved eternally. You say, well, how does that work? Here's how it works. Christ Jesus bore the punishment for your sin and for mine. When he died on the cross and his blood was shed, it satisfied the justice of God. His death paid the price for all of the sins of our lives. It was justice being carried out upon him as our substitute. And now God forgives whoever will believe on Christ, removing guilt and any offense that is made against his holiness. God is a God of love, and he is such a God of love that he forgives anyone who will come to Christ, anyone who will look to the cross. God removes the guilt of that sinner, and any offense that sinner has made against his holiness, God delights in doing that. That brings me to the third statement, and that is that therefore, because Christ died for the sinner and paid the price and satisfied justice, it would be unjust of God to now punish you again for your sin. God's justice is satisfied in Christ. He is not going to punish Christ for your sin and then punish you for your sin. That would cross the justice of God. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Is that the attitude of your heart this morning, confessing your sin to God, bringing your iniquity to God, bringing your dirty laundry to God, and opening your heart to Him? God is just when he forgives you because Christ died for you. Have you received Christ as your Lord and Savior? If not, will you do it today? You see, you're either on the forgiven side of God's justice or you're on the judgment side of God's justice. He who believes on the Son has eternal life, but he who rejects the Son does not have life, shall not see life, and the wrath of God remains on him. Every one of us is on one side or the other of God's justice. And it's the cross that is the dividing line. When we come to the cross, we escape the wrath that's fulfilled on Jesus, and we're forgiven. Thank God for his justice. And my friend, today is your opportunity to cross that line and get on the other side of God's justice and experience his forgiveness. Let's pray together. Father, in the quietness of this moment, I pray that there may be someone who will understand
and feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Some teenager, some young adult, some senior perhaps, who would feel that sense of guilt before you and the shame that comes with our sin and be willing to repent and turn from that sin, that shame, that guilt, and go to the cross. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that your arms are stretched out to receive such a one. And they can know your forgiveness and get on to the forgiving side of justice. And I pray they will this morning. In the quietness of this moment, you can do that right where you're seated. Inviting Jesus Christ to come into your life. To bring his salvation that he purchased for you at the cross. Will you invite him in? Will you trust him as the one who satisfied God's justice on your behalf? Father, thank you that when we have crossed that bridge, when we've come to that other side, we're forgiven. We can be assured that we're forgiven forever. And that justice is satisfied for eternity. By your grace, for our sake.